Hey, Fonner Church, so thankful that you're here today as we wrap up the very last week of this series we've been walking through for a while, All You Need Is Love. We've been taking a slow crawl towards and through the first part of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and today we'll sort of wrap up. So if you've got a paper Bible in front of you, if you brought one with you, we want to honor you for that and invite you to turn with us to that good book, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And what I want us to look at today is... The last in a run, a beautiful poetic run that the Apostle Paul writes to a church that he loves and he longs would be more like Jesus. And he tells them that love endures and that love never ends. And if you're like me in a world where you see half of marriages end in divorce, in a world of you can't fire me, I quit, this concept of love that endures and love that never ends seems otherworldly. And that's exactly what it is. That's how I want us to spend the balance of our time that we would see and behold the beauty of God's perfect love. And that as we're people who want to live a life of love as followers of Jesus, that we would be so captivated by his goodness, by his loveliness, that from us would flow love, that we could see that a love offered to us out of this world is something that we truly can embrace. So what I want us to look at today is three things. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you before I tell you what I'll tell you. So let's put those on the screen. We look at this. The first thing that we'll look at today is love's expiration. The second is love's maturation. And the third is love's station. Those rhyme for me, not for you. But the first one we'll look at is this, love's expiration. We find in 1 Corinthians 13 and 7 and 8 that love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. So we see some things tied together, and we'll get to the back three in a minute, but we see love endures, and the word I want us to phrase, I want us to live with here is that love never ends. Now, if you are like me, you go to the grocery store, and uh, you're cheap and frivolous. Maybe it's my evangelical guilt. I don't mean to project that on you. I had a conversation with one of our elders today about how he's wearing a half working pair of sunglasses because he can't bring himself to buy another one. But if you go to the grocery store like me, you look for things like expiration dates on things that feel really high leverage like milk. And then this dried pasta that I didn't even know was in my pantry that I dug out yesterday so that I could bring to talk about the frivolous nature of expiration dates. I don't really, I don't know how long this has been in my pantry but apparently it's good through next March. Hopefully I take it home and use it. Otherwise, some kind of rat or creature might come back here and find it if I don't move this. Sorry, Lauren. But you see this in our culture. We, we've got this fixed concept that things are going to run out. Things are going to go bad. They're going to spoil. They'll decay. Now, some grocery stores have even been as weird with people's obsession with expiration dates that they're beginning to, really across the pond, mostly in the UK, remove expiration dates from things which sounds absolutely terrifying to me. I could probably do a show of hands for some of you who are disgusting people who look at an expiration date and then you do the (laughs) sniff test, which is what this grocery store is advocating. Alex raises his hand in the front row. And then you uh, discard it or roll the dice and choose to use it. But baked into this world is death and decay, finitude, limits. But we see this, that the Lord would say that there's a love that never ends. And it's not just a love that never ends, but it's the love that never ends, both divine and our responsibility. 
So when we see love never ends, I want to take you to two meanings that we really find within the word, in the language, as it was written in the original. And the first is this concept that love will not die. That's the expiration that we think about, right? That love is alive for a while, and then the battery runs out on love. Love's a full tank of gasoline, and it putters to the end. But love, in its nature, in its state, at its essence, will never die. And the word here that happens when we see that love will not end, other translations of the Bible would say love never fails, and the concept in this word is that it's the same thing that a seed does when it goes into the ground. If you look back there at that beautiful stained glass piece, the parable of the sower, it's the same word that's used there, that seed would fall into the ground and it would give life to a new thing, that it would change, it would go down a seed and it would come out a plant. But here's what Paul tells us. Here's what the Lord tells us about love is that when you sow love, you reap love. When you choose love and you give love and you work in love, that the net positive in God's economy is love. It goes in and it comes out love. Different than some other things which we'll go into But love is the thing that remains. It's the thing that stays, the thing that endures, the thing that never dies. The second thing we see is that love won't fall from its prominent place. It's this idea in one translation that would say that love never fails, that love operates as something for a period of time, but then it goes away because it's no longer needed or no longer necessary. But both in this world and the new earth to come, love is essential. We can't get away or outside from love. There is no expiration date on love, and there is no removing love from its prominent place. We see Paul outline here three things, prophecy, tongues, and knowledge. And he talks about although love endures, it remains, and love never ends, it never dies, it never fails, that these other things, well, they do. And what do these things do, and how do we see that these things contrast with love? Well, it's pretty simple. Prophecy, it serves to reveal insights of things that have passed and things to come. It speaks to a thing that has happened, that God would use people to instruct the depth and the fullness and the reality of it. And then things that have not yet happened that will come. I'm really excited. After this, we're starting a series in the book of Daniel. Daniel, uh, not me, Daniel, the biblical Daniel who lived in a culture that felt very different, very foreign, but was committed to his faith, his love for God, and lived a life that was shaped by that. Don't we need that in our world today? Thankful for that Thriving in Babylon, a series that starts next week when Robert's back with us. The second thing we see is tongues, tongues, divine, supernatural. Some people would say the gift of tongues has ceased. Some people would say the gift of tongues remains. I'm not giving you my answer today, but regardless, tongues would help people praise God in a way, a supernatural way, a different way. And underneath that, you see knowledge. Knowledge, the thing that feels the most tactile to us in 2023 in the church in America and the West. But knowledge would serve to instruct us. It teaches us. It reveals things to us that we can know and then things that are yet to be known. What am I showing you here? I'm showing you gifts. Paul is pairing these things that are beautiful, essential, revered in this church in Corinth. These three would have been perceived by the Corinthians as really the best of all 
gifts. Now, if you remember the summer and into the spring, we were walking through the book of 1 Corinthians, and we looked at the necessity of gifts and the different types of gifts and how it's important for every single gift to be used in God's kingdom. So I'm so thankful for days like yesterday, Serve Day, where we had just under 200 people go out to a dozen sites in the city of Jackson and serve ministries that Farnham Church partners with and believes in the gospel ministry of, that you have got good gifts that need to be used by God but we would see that love is one that needs to go before and above and beyond all other things. So while these gifts are good, the gift of love, exercising the gift of love, is the most important thing that we can do as God's followers. We look at this in 1 Corinthians 1, at the very beginning where Paul's talking about love, he would say, you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Think about this, right? Like, hey, Jesus has come and he's lived and he's died on the cross for your sins so that you could know him and experience him fully. But he's gone and he said it's gonna be better for the helper, for the Holy Spirit to come than for me to remain. And with that, he imparts gifts, things that he's wired you for specifically. You have a unique, irreplicable life. There will never be another you. And while you should cherish the love that God gives you, because there will never be another you, you should use your gift, use what God's given you for his glory and for the good of the world. But we see that the necessity of gifts is a way for us to experience God's love that never ends. Because when we sow love into the world, love remains. Love never fails. So we see this, that although other fruits will expire, love shall remain. Some fruits will die with us at death. Some things that we're good at, some things that we have, when our earthly bodies cease and God raises us with new imperishable bodies, some of the things that we do, we won't need anymore. You think about this, you think about me. I hope I have the gift of preaching, I'm doing it right now. If not, you guys are enduring a couple of things. But what we see is that this gift is no longer needed because God himself is there to instruct us of the things of God. The gift of knowledge that we would have, some of us with higher capacity to know and to experience the things of God, but God invites us all on a journey to cultivate the thought life of our faith. We would see that knowledge, while we will continue to learn in heaven, our own personal capacity will be lifted as God gives us a new body with new capabilities in our mind. Tongues, which would praise God in a supernatural way. We have so much more of a supernatural way to praise God when we're with him in heaven in the end. And prophecy that would speak of things that have passed and things that are to come. We will be with God and God himself will instruct us of all things. Don't you see what Paul's doing here? He's saying, you do a great job following the Lord. You do a great job expressing and experiencing him in these ways. But love, the demonstration of love, must go above all else. The second thing we see is love's maturation. It's that love matures, that love grows, that love is something that we begin to experience more and more and more. Paul pivots to this in 1 Corinthians 13. For now we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. 
And he goes into this. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. And now as I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Paul gives us two beautiful pictures here, but before we pivot, it's so important for us to see this. He talks about our limits in the way that we can experience love, that as people who have ailments and anxiety, we have passion and perplexity, we have doubts and we're downcast, and all the things that we would experience, we are held back in our ability to fully behold the love of God. And you can think about your own faith, however long you've been walking with the Lord. If you're in the room and you're not a follower of Jesus, we're so thankful that you're here. I pray today you would see his goodness and you would believe on him. But if you are a senior saint and you've been walking with the Lord for a long time, you can think about your life. You can think about pockets of disappointment that you've had. You can think about loveless seasons in your own life. Maybe it's an unrequited love or maybe it's uh, someone that you couldn't forgive. But you can look back and you can go, you know what? I got that wrong. I had limited perspective. I was short-sighted. And this is what Paul would say to us as he invites us on this journey of love that we would see God and his character and it would shape us. That as we grow in our faith, as we grow in our age, so we would grow in our ability to experience and to demonstrate God's divine love. We see two things here. The first is he talks about how we see in a mirror dimly. Dimly there is an interesting word in the original language. It's where we get our word enigma from. We can see, but we don't really have all the pieces quite figured out. You know what you're looking at, but you're not sure you can really put your arms around it. You got a good picture, but it's not the full thing. So we see this, that they're seeing indirectly and they're seeing fully. Seeing indirectly and seeing fully. And when we think about seeing directly, I, I'm drawn to Moses and this account in Numbers 12 where his brother and his sister were ganging up on him because they didn't like some of his decisions. And they said this, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it and he said this, the man Moses was very meek, very meek more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and Aaron and to Miriam, come out you three to the tent of meeting. God's calling them to the principal's office. We pick up and the three of them came out and the Lord came down on a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and he called Aaron and Miriam and they both came forward. And he said, hear my words. If there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known to him in a vision. I'll speak with him in a dream. But it's not so with my servant Moses. He's faithful in all my house. With him, I speak mouth to mouth, face to face, like one person beholding another in conversation. I speak with him clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled, and he departed. Why am I showing you this as we pick up in the middle of the Israelites in the desert, because there was something unique and divinely appointed by Moses, where he, in a way that was separate from all the people of Israel, 
was able to see and experience God face to face. Different than Moses' brother and sister, who were used greatly of him to lead the people and establish the priesthood and keep right worship, there was something different about Moses. And we, because of Jesus Christ's death and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, have the ability to experience something very similar. That on this side of the cross, we can experience God's person in the Holy Spirit. We can sit and dwell and be shaped and conformed, transformed from one degree of glory to the next, so that our love, both our ability to experience God's love and our ability to demonstrate God's love, is shaped when we behold him face to face. But there are some limits to our life often. We're busy, we're short-sighted, we're often running on fumes, and we miss the opportunity to both encounter and to demonstrate God's divine love. Paul knew that, that's why the Lord led him to write this, that we would see in a mirror dimly. And here's a picture of a mirror that they would have in Corinth. This was dug up in Corinth in the third or fourth century. What you see here looks like a mirror now. Look at innovation in cosmetics. You got a handle at the bottom and a circly thing. That's the technical title, circly thing. But what you would see here on the top is that it's bronze and uh, it's changed colors because I'm sure it was underground somewhere. But there was no glass that sat on top of it. Instead, what they would do is they would polish this bronze mirror. And it would help them catch a reflection of themselves, but it would not show them the full picture. It was limited by light, limited by angle, it was limited by the nature of what the thing was. Let me modernize the illustration for you from a rusty mirror that you could hardly catch a glimpse off of to, uh, as I read this week, one commentator talk about uh, photographs and how someone can see someone's picture or someone's likeness and think that they get a picture of them. I'm gonna show you four pictures of people that people say that I look like in my ugliest moments. I think people think that I look like Wynn Butler of Arcade Fire. He's not the cutest man in the whole world. When I'm feeling really cute and people like me, they tell me I look like a young Ben Affleck. There you go. All right, on to the next one. If you were in college 15 years ago, then people probably think that I look like Ben Rector. And if you are in college 15 months ago, people think that I look like Jordy Searcy. But really, when you look at those guys, those are just Aryan-looking guys with big heads. Like, that's all it is. Just some white guys with big heads. Am I those guys? No, I'm me. But the angle that I'm at, the distance, someone's thought makes me like them. But this is not what we see with the Lord that we have the ability to know fully as we're fully known. In this life, we do have reflections of God. We can see him in the world in created order. Romans 1, we see God in his created order so that all are without excuse. We can see God's love manifest, his goodness. But we know that there's more that we don't know we don't have the full picture. We see in part, but one day we'll see in full. Just as God fully knows us, he sees every piece of us, all the good and all the bad, and lavishes divine love on us regardless. Just as we have the extension of love from God, we turn that back around. It's our obligation to live a life 
of love. But in a world where we're busy, distracted, hurried, how do we anchor ourselves to see this pure divine love, to know that God is the author and the perfecter of all good things? How does that trickle down to us and through us into the world? Well, it's by thinking more of God. It's what Paul would say, the mirror is not something that they would walk past, but something that they would sit in front of to try to figure out what their hair looked like, what their face looked like, what kind of gross first century cosmetics to put on their face. They would behold themselves, and in the same way Paul would say, for you to know love and to live love, you must behold God. So often, we don't do the work to behold God. I think about seasons of my life where I've been out of the spiritual disciplines, out of prayer, out of solitude, out of meditation, out of the word, and how that changes my ability to go and to love. And some of you are better at this than others. You've fostered a deep prayer life, a thought life that has thoughts of heaven. And often we can talk ourselves out of it by thinking that we need to live in the world that we're in. I'll think about heaven when I get there. I'll dwell on the good things of God when I experience them face to face. I'll clean my life up and come to Jesus when I'm older. You've all heard them and you might have said them. And often we find opposition like this sentence that I recovered this week. You might have heard this from your grandparents that some people are of such a heavenly mind that they're of no earthly good. Do I need to use that with a country accent so you can hear it from the throat of your grandmother? My great-grandmother used to do that all the time. She would talk about people who were following Jesus and people who were overly generous or uh, overly compassionate. She would go, you know, they're just of such heavenly mind, no earthly good, can't count on them for nothing. Okay, well, that's your opinion. But what we would find here is often that there's this thing that even we do where we would question our ability and the need for us to think about the next life, the life to come, a perfect world. As Jonathan Edwards would write, heaven which is a world of love. You want to know love, you want to see love, you want to taste love in its purest form? Think of the world to come. This is what Paul would write in 1 Corinthians. He would say, we know partially, we will know fully in all the ways that you long to know God. God, why did you do this? Why did you do that? Why are you like this? Why are you not like that? all of our burning questions, as deeply as God knows us, we will know him in this world of love. Where we find a perfect world, not just where he wipes every tear from our eye, but where we find that every one of our tears is held in a bottle. The God who so intimately longs to know you and loves you enough to give his own life that we could long for and experience that, and it would change the way that we live. Edwards would write this about our inability to express love. He would say, we never live with less love than when we have the least of heaven and are farthest from it in our mindset. This is what we find when we're loveless, is that we're unplugged from the source. And often, if you're like me, you chase after things that don't reward. They don't endure. They will fail. When I think about longing for heaven and longing for the kingdom, I think about this as Matthew 
would account of Jesus' two parables here. He would say the kingdom of heaven is like treasure in a field, and when a man found it, he covered it. And then in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has, and he buys that field. And like it, he says this, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all he had, and he bought it. What's this? This is people who see God's goodness. They see his loveliness. They see his perfection. They see the way that the world is broken, but that they would long for all things to be made right, and that they'd be willing to lay down and to give up to experience him, both in salvation and in the way that they would live in those things. It's easy for us to look at that as just cheap and transactional, right? All right, well, to follow Jesus, I got to give up some things in my life. I got to be less angry. I got to be less selfish. I got to give away more money. But no, what we see instead is it's not just the transaction, but it's the transformation that would come from this person beholding and experiencing the pearl and the treasure. That God is not just an accent for your life, an accessory like a jacket or a hat but as the key fixture, the Lord of your life, both the way that you can be loved and can live love, change when you remember that, that we would behold and we would be transformed. So if I'm telling you to be more heavenly, to think more heaven-like, to live your life now like the life that you will live in eternity, how exactly do we do that? How do we build a heavenly perspective for life. Well, the first thing to do is this, it's to draw from God as the source of pure love. I have loved this series that we've been in as we've been having conversations around trusting and being slow to anger, being generous and not greedy, being patient and kind. But so many times, I've thought this in my mind, and I've had the privilege to sit with a lot of you and hear a lot of, well, I know that I should be doing that, but. I know that I need more like this, but. But to live a life after God is to take the buts and to move them to action. Not to stop at resistance, to stop at the first break of sweat in your life as you pursue holiness, but instead to long to be more like him. Again, Edwards in his sermon, Heaven is a World of Love, would say, that just like the sun would send down beams to warm the earth and to do beautiful things like light up this glass that we have in here, so too God is pure love, the source of all eternal and unending love. And when you think about your ability to love in your own capacity, it's when you feel like it, when you've got time, and when it makes sense. But that's not the lavish love we see from our Father. So as we see him and we behold him and we know what it looks like for God to love and to be love, so too should we. God's love should flow to us and through us. The second thing we see is just to do that, to fill your heart with higher thoughts and to pursue holy actions. You can't be like God if you're not thinking about him. You're not going to win a race if you're not training for it. How can you, in your moments where it's un- it's complicated, it's not easy to love, where it doesn't make sense on paper. How can you do those things if you haven't practiced? If you don't sit and behold and live a life where by muscle memory you become more and more lovely 
What's well, by seeing God, by reading his word, by seeing his track record of goodness towards you. That you should fill your life with higher thoughts and pursue holy actions. The next is this, not to let your heart go after the things of the world as your highest goal. We just read those two passages about treasure. What do you treasure? Is it power? Is it prestige? Is it a big purse? What in your life do you put before the Lord? And when you find in your loveless moments, it's probably because you've put something else in the driver's seat of your life. You're not working to experience heaven, to experience God's goodness, to make God known, but something that falls short, that will expire. The last thing to be willing to face difficulty along the way, this is true for all of the Christian life, that you'll have accusations like you're too heavenly-minded, too generous, too patient. You let people walk over you. You give away everything. You'll have people that'll look at you as you live a divine type of love, a radical type of love, and they'll question you. You think about the founding of our faith, Christians in the first century, when people would persecute them, they would not meet them with violence. When entire towns would fold up because of sickness and plague, Christians would go in to care. When society would put people on the margins, like women and children and people that weren't citizens, the church would say, we are a place for you because you're made in the image of God. As we live our life in a heavenly way, it won't make much earthly sense. And the last thing to do is to work today to build an eternal legacy of love. An eternal legacy of love where you can live your life recognizing love on the earth as we know it on the earth, selfish love or self-serving love. Those things will expire. They will run out. There's an expiration date on the bottle of milk. But the way that we love, the way that we show a piece of God's character and our kindness and our compassion, it will last far beyond us. Don't you want your life to count? Don't you want to live for something beyond just your life? Your family, your workplace, your contributions to the kingdom, your generosity, all those things go far beyond you. That love will not expire work to leave a legacy of love. When I think about a legacy of love, I think about Eric Little. Eric was the person who Chariots of Fire uh, was made after in 1926. He won gold in the Olympics uh, in the 400, a race he wasn't expected to win because he didn't run the 100 uh, because qualifications were on a Sunday. Say what you will, accuse him of being a legalist, but he knew his convictions. But we see Eric, after he won Olympic gold and was memorialized in film, he went on to be a missionary in China. He grew up in a missionary family. And uh, when he came to his end of his career, his Olympic career, he moved back to be a teacher in China. And if you know anything about China in the 1930s and 1940s, it was occupied by Japan before World War II. And Eric found himself in a labor camp, a concentration camp, essentially. What we know of Eric uh, from people who made it out of the camp was that his life had this perspective beyond what the hardship he experienced was. He knew that love, as he sowed and showed it, would have no end. That there was a life after this. And that the life he lived was worth propping up the life that he lived after this. 
there's a man who went to be a theologian, academic, Langdon Gilkey is his name, and he wrote this of Eric. He would say, after long days of labor, you would often find Eric hunched over a chessboard or organizing a square dance for the pent-up youths. And that down to the very end when he died of tuberculosis, months before he was liberated, that he longed for a world of love, both in the hell he experienced and in the heaven who knew he was going to. He was so shaped by the future that it changed his present. I want to invite you to stand, and as you do, I want to show you the last point, that we would see love's station. Love's station, not like a train station, but the spot that love takes that it is the thing that would remain, would abide when all other fruits will cease, we would see this in 1313. So now faith, hope, and love abide. They remain, these three, in heaven. But the greatest of these is love. The greatest of these is love. How could that be? Greater than faith? Greater than hope? Those are good things, right? Don't we need faith? to trust God's goodness that he has, who he says he was, and he's going to do what he said he's going to do? Don't we need hope? That we know that even though we might die and Jesus might tarry, that death will be defeated, that Satan will be crushed forever, that God will make every sad thing untrue? But love is at the core of God's character. First John 4, God is love. God's not like love, He doesn't do love, he is love. So for you, for me, when it's so easy to lose our mark, to drift off course, to question who and why and wonder what, let's behold God and his goodness. Think about these weeks that have come before us, patience and kindness, the ability to bear, to trust, it's hard to do. It's impossible to do when we do it from within ourselves. But when we would see God's goodness, his love, his great love that he lavishes from heaven on us in salvation and calls us to live as people who would represent him in the world, let's live a life of love. I want to invite you to the table today. I'm not going to pray as I usually do to close a sermon, but instead I want us to enter in a mind of prayerfulness as we would come to communion, to the Lord's Supper. You'll follow the people in front of you. This is not about denominational affiliation or membership here, but if you call in the name of Jesus for salvation, if you trust that he is your Lord, that he has died in your place, and you live your life for him now, you're welcome to the table. And as we go, let's see the bread and the juice, ordinary elements, representative of something far greater, that one day we will have full communion with him. We'll see him face to face. And together as we long to be with him, as we long to be made right, we taste in part what one day we will know in full. Let's take the supper together.